0: Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from the book of Jonah. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 17, and go down through the end of chapter 2 if you want to follow along. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. I cried. And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was feigning away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to feign idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Amen. Thanks, Joe. So we're in Jonah chapter 2, and uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And while you're doing that, I'd like to pray for us. And Lord, we do pray that as you always do, you are faithful to speak to us through your word. So may we have ears to hear, hearts ready to listen, and follow your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's an interesting fact. Beneath the city of Rome, over in Italy, there are a series of subterranean tunnels that were carved out many, many centuries ago called the catacombs. How many of you are familiar with the catacombs? Yeah. Ancient excavators carved them out of the soft volcanic rock that lies under a good portion of that city. And basically, these tunnels were used as burial chambers. Some of them descended down for four stories going down, and they were connected by these narrow stairways. Well, back in the 3rd and 4th centuries, Christians would not only bury their dead in these vaults, but also when persecution from the state would flare up, they would go down there and hide, basically hiding out from the authorities, trying to preserve their lives. One of the most interesting things you find in the catacombs is some really some pretty cool artwork, primitive paintings painted on the, the tunnel walls called frescoes. And many of those frescoes depict stories from the life of Jesus but also from stories from the Old Testament. And can you guess which Old Testament story is seen most often on those fresco paintings? I'll give you one guess. (laughs) Yeah, Jonah and the great fish. And there are several scenes from his life there. I'm thinking those early followers of Jesus probably took great comfort in Jonah's story of being delivered by God, probably seeking to boost their own faith in God's ability to rescue them. And when we read Jonah's prayer, recorded in chapter 2 of Jonah, we can see the parallels between his desperate situation and their desperate situation. Well, as we saw last weekend, the story of Jonah is a gospel story. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's a story of sin and grace. It's a story of a merciful God with a missionary heart, a God who goes to great lengths to pursue sinners. And rescue them from their idolatry and wasn't it interesting to see that God has a heart for both the unrighteous pagan Ninevites and for Jonah that self-righteous and judgmental prophet seeing that reminded us of the parable of the the two lost sons that we explored together back in the month of January where we saw the father's heart not only for his rebellious prodigal but also for his older son who was very religious and very dutiful, but just as lost. I think through stories like these, the Bible's trying to tell us something. I think it's trying to tell us that there are actually two kinds of lostness, two ways that people end up far from God. Unrighteous, evil, wicked badness, and self-righteous, moralistic goodness. Let me say it a different way. You can be just as lost by trying to be religious as you can by going hog-wild rebellious. So critical for us to understand. Think about what we know about Jonah for a minute. God gives Jonah a mission. What was the mission? Deliver a message. I have a message of judgment and also an offer of grace for the people who live in the city of Nineveh. And Jonah, I want you to deliver that message for me. But Jonah didn't want to go, and when we poked around to find out why, we discovered that Jonah hated the Ninevites. He despised them. He would rather have seen them destroyed by God than saved by God. What was in his heart was a a prejudice, a contempt, a self-righteous bitterness against those nasty Ninevites, that antagonistic nation that had tormented his people, Jonah's people, for centuries and centuries so there was no love in his heart for them, only hatred. He wanted to see them burn, not saved. And so the gospel that Jonah was called to preach had not yet sunk down deep into his heart, evidenced by his lack of compassion for his enemies. So I tried to think of a modern-day parallel for this, and I think I came up with one. You may or may not know this, but the gospel of Jesus is reaching deep into Muslim communities these days. A friend of mine offered, uh, recommended a book to me this week, and the title of the book is this, Miraculous Movements, How Hundreds and Thousands of Muslims Are Falling in Love with Jesus. Now, if you hear that, and you think, I don't want Muslims to find Jesus. I don't want His grace to reach to them and rescue them from judgment. Why would God do that? They're the ones trying to blow us up. I would rather see them burn in hell. If that's your mindset then you're like Jonah. And the gospel needs to sink deeper and deeper into your heart so that your mindset changes. I heard an analogy this week that gave me a visual picture of this. And I think we've all had this experience. You're standing there in front of a pop machine, okay? And it's a hot day and you're wanting a Diet Coke in there, so you have your coinage in hand and you finally select and say, okay, it's E6. So you take your corner, your quarter, and you drop it in the slot and it doesn't fall down into the coin box. And you're going, doggone it, stupid machine. And what do you do in that moment? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, you're like looking around. Nobody's, you're shaking that thing. Maybe you're kicking it, jostling it, trying to get that quarter to drop down into the coin box so you can get your Diet Coke and be refreshed. I think that illustrates what has happened to some of us. Somewhere along the line, someone deposited the gospel message into our minds. Jesus, Yes, I get that. Jesus came. Jesus died for my sins. He was buried. He rose from the grave. I get that. But it hasn't yet dropped down into our hearts where it affects our values and our mindset and our outlook on life. Jonah's story shows us one evidence that the gospel hasn't yet dropped. Hating our enemies. The gospel tells us that God loves his enemies that he runs towards them with a message not only of coming judgment but an offer of grace and mercy but if we want our enemies to burn that we sh- then we should know that the gospel has not yet dropped down deep into our hearts and you know what god does not mind one bit shaking us up a little bit to get that gospel to drop or giving us a little kick or jostling our lives so that we get it god is a missionary god who goes after those who have turned away from him. Thank God for that. Now, God's not only working on his people, but last week we also saw that God has a heart for the city. He loves urban city dwellers, even in their wickedness. And by calling Jonah to be his messenger to that city, we can see that God wants to love the city through his people. Now, think about cities for a minute. Cities are very intriguing. They're very complex. Cities are population centers where lots of people live. It's interesting to me that in chapter 4, God tells Jonah the population of Nineveh. So God keeps track of the census. God knows who lives where. He knows how many people populate cities. Cities are population centers. They're also cultural centers. Art and music and media flow downstream from the cities, don't they? And affect and influence lots and lots of people. And cities are centers of commerce and industry, and cities are centers of worship. Even in the account of Nineveh, it's not that the people there weren't worshipers. They just weren't worshiping the one true God. As one man said, people are incurable worshipers. We will all worship something. And cities are worship centers where people worship. Mostly idols, but they worship. Even so, God loves the city and he's committed to revealing himself to city dwellers To bring them from darkness to light through Jesus Christ. You know what? God has called us to love our city as well. We live in a city. The greater Columbus, Ohio area. It's a great city, isn't it? It's a wonderful place to live. God's called us to love our city. I've been sensing that as the gospel drops deeper into many of our hearts, that God's missionary heart is going to expand in us. And like Jonah, we're going to be called as missionary messengers to our city. I love it when I see prayer requests from some of you. You write it on the back of your cards and you say, please pray for me because I'm seeking to, to reach my co-workers for Christ. I pray for open doors of conversation with people that I am at school with or at work with or in my neighborhood. I love that. That tells me that God's putting his heart for the city in, into your heart. Paul wrote that we are ambassadors for Christ, missionaries to our city, our community. And here's what's so encouraging to me. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Jonah wasn't perfect. Not by a long shot. We're going to discover that Jonah was a pouting prophet with a sour attitude and a divided heart. (laughs) That's not ideal, but God still used him. So if, if you're a person who has baggage, you have junk in your life, you have wounds from your past, you know, stay on that pathway towards healing and towards maturity, but know that God wants to use you even With all of that, the perfect God is willing to use imperfect people. Amen? Like me and like you. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be praying for our city here in celebrations. You've heard we've got neighborhood Bible clubs starting up soon. This year, we're taking VBS out into the neighborhoods. And there's over 20 NBCs now, neighborhood Bible clubs, that are going to start up in mid-July and early part of August. What a great concept. I've seen the curriculum. It is the gospel is what it is. It's our message given to the children of our city. And there's still a need for a few teachers and game leaders and song leaders and prayer partners to join up and team up and lead out in these neighborhood Bible clubs. And maybe God is calling you to be involved in that. And if so, you can write just on the back of your card this morning, just write NBC, Neighborhood Bible Club. Somebody will contact you about that. So if God's calling you to that, don't run to Tarshish, okay? <laughs> God's calling you. He'll equip you. He'll prepare you and give you confidence and joy in serving him. This coming week, as Brian said, we're also blessing our city by serving meals, preparing and serving meals to underprivileged people here in our own town, our own community. Summer Lunch Club, it's called. And you can be involved in that. You can just show up tomorrow here at 10 a.m. and you can be involved in helping putting all those meals together and in serving them if you'd like. This week also, a small group's going to be prayer walking through the old Gahanna section of our town here, over behind Wendy's and then across Granville Street to, I think it's 400 homes or so, praying for every family living in those homes and leaving a gospel pamphlet on their door. We want to see God love our city through us, through his people. We want to be a part of that. We want to join God in his mission of loving city dwellers. We're also blessing other cities. We've got teams heading out very soon to Los Anonos down in Costa Rica. We prayed for all of them last week. We've also got a team going to Makono Village in Uganda to encourage our gospel partners there. We're partnering up with a guy named Dave Early, if you've ever heard of him. He and a team from Liberty University have moved to Las Vegas. We're going to be starting a church in Las Vegas this fall. We want to send a team out in January to Las Vegas do some prayer walking around the UNLV there, the the campus and distributing literature. You're going to be hearing more about another church plan at the University of Pittsburgh, a granddaughter church from this church. So we planted New Life OSU, and New Life OSU is sending a team to the University of Pittsburgh to start a campus church there this fall. Teams already moved there. We want to be involved with all of these things. I really do believe the Lord is doing something in our hearts. He's expanding in us his heart for the city. So let's not be like Jonah who ran away from the city, but let's join God in his mission of running towards the city with his message of mercy. All right. So last week, do you remember where we left Jonah? We left him tumbling around in the Mediterranean Sea, finally bobbing to the surface, gasping for air. The ship he was on, if he was looking to find it, it's probably just a a little speck now on the horizon. It's long gone. Probably mad at us for leaving him out there treading water for seven days. We don't know how long he was actually out there. But we do know God had a plan to rescue Jonah. God was not done with him, even though he tried to run away. Just like God's not done with you yet. As long as you have breath in your lungs, God has a plan. God wants to to use you. And so we're going to pick up the story today. We discover this rescue plan in the last verse of chapter one Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now I know I'm going to disappoint some of you because I'm not going to spend time trying to show how this was actually a plausible thing. How a man could live inside a fish for three days and survive that. And you know, many skeptics over the years have made fun of Christians for believing this. Did you know that? Maybe you've encountered some of that. I simply want to point out a few salient facts. Number one, this story is in the Bible. Number two, when you read it in the Bible in its context, it was obviously intended to be viewed as a historical event that actually happened in time and space. There's names and sit- places and cities. And most importantly, number three, Jesus believed that it happened. Did you know that? We saw this last week, but I want us to see again that Jesus referred to this event in a way that tells us that he believed it really happened. In Matthew 12, a group of people were demanding that Jesus give them a sign, give us a sign to show us that you're the Messiah. And he answered them very calmly and gently, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. (laughs) Jesus knew how to bring it, didn't he? But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here's the deal. Either this really happened, either Jonah's story really happened or Jesus was deceived because Jesus obviously believed that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And of course, Jesus believed it happened because he was the one who made it happen. You say, well, wait a second. I thought it says that God appointed the great fish to go and swallow Jonah. Yes, it says it was the Lord who did it. In your Bible, it should say capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the English translation of Yahweh, the personal name of God, that God gave to Moses way back when. When Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? And and God said, tell them I am sent you. That's Yahweh, I am. We sang about this, didn't we? The great I am. That's the personal name of God. And Jesus claimed that name for himself. In John 8, 58, you can read it. He said, before Abraham was, I am. What was he saying? He was saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah God. And one of the ways he demonstrated that was through what he called the sign of Jonah. What was that? His own death and resurrection that was symbolized centuries earlier by Jonah's three-day stay in the tomb-like belly of the great fish and then his emergence into the light of life again just like Jesus. So Jesus believed in Jonah and so I do too. So picture now in your mind and you just saw it depicted earlier picture how this happened. Jonah is there treading water, right? Wondering how long his strength can hold up. There's no rescue boat in sight. He probably thinks he's going to die. And all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a huge mouth opening up right in front of him and he gets swept into that opening along with a ton of seawater and a bunch of fish and then the opening closes behind him and he finds himself sliding down a slippery slope that dumps him with a splash into a dark smelly cavernous pool with a bunch of dead fish floating around and a few live ones swimming around too it's pitch black and just like we saw in the skit he's feeling around trying to get his bearings and the whole thing is moving So try to get inside his mind at that moment. What would you do? Well, what did Jonah do? He prayed. Finally, Jonah prays. Remember the the sailors on the ship have been badgering, get up and pray, you sleeper, if you care about us at all. Didn't tell us that he prayed then, but he prays now. Now sometimes people hear this story of Jonah and they think that Jonah was praying to be delivered from the belly of the fish that's not what we see here he's not praying to be rescued from the fish he's thanking god that he's been rescued by the fish says that he's in the fish thanking god for rescuing him from the sea from drowning in the sea the fish is not god's judgment the fish is god's rescue so it occurs to me that the great fish is also a picture of jesus who was appointed by the Father to go and rescue his people from death and destruction. Maybe that's why early Christians use a fish symbol to identify themselves. I don't know that that's the case, but you should research that and find out. Well, when I look at this prayer, several things stand out to me immediately. The first thing I noticed is, is, is it sounds a lot like the Psalms. When Joe was reading it, did you think that? Well, that sounds like the Psalms. Then I realized that Jonah probably knew the Psalms. David, who wrote most of the psalms, lived about 300 years before Jonah lived. Jonah was a Jewish kid. He would have been raised learning the law and learning the Old Testament. He probably had learned and memorized a number of the psalms. And then when he found himself in a desperate situation in the sea, and then now in the belly of the fish, thanking God for rescue, I'm sure that his prayer was informed by his knowledge of those psalms. It sounds like the psalms. Let me read the prayer for you once again. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? Next thing I notice is that in it, Jonah acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Now he knew it was the sailors who had dumped him overboard, but he saw God's hand behind it all, didn't he? He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Verse 6, You brought up my life from the pit he realized that being swallowed by the fish was not just a freak event of nature, not just a random occurrence or coincidence. He knew God did it. God rescued him from death. So Jonah affirms, at least in some measure, God's control over that whole situation. Third thing I notice is that this prayer reflects gratefulness to God for his listening ear and his rescuing heart. Verse 2, he answered me. I prayed. He answered me. You heard my voice. Verse 7, My prayer came to you, God. You heard me. Verse 9, I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What's he saying? Thank you, God. Thank you. I owe you everything for rescuing me. You know, let me say this. When God rescues you from disaster, you ought to thank God. You know that? You ought to say thank you. You ought to give praise to God. Fourth thing I notice is that this prayer is full of imagery. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, he said. And somebody heard that and he's like, what in the world is Sheol? Well, in the Hebrew mind, that was the place of the departed dead. That's where the spirits of dead people went after death. You would enter Sheol by going through a gate of bars. And so that's why in verse 6 he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Sheol was a place that was deemed to be down, down, down towards the center of the earth. You descended down into Sheol. It was inhabited by the spirits of people who had died. So he uses this image of Sheol to describe his near-death experience. Then in verse 6, he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. So there's another image, a pit. You ever been in the pit? A deep place that you can't get out of? A place of hopelessness, of confinement? Down, down, down in the pit. He's saying, I was at death's doorstep, but you, God, came and you rescued me. You know, I believe this prayer is a model for us. Say, do you believe in foxhole prayers? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. Absolutely. I believe God hears the desperate cry coming from the lips of people in distress. I'm going down, God. I'm going down for the third time. I'm looking around. I don't see any life preservers around anymore. If you don't rescue me, I'm done. I'm I'm done. You ever prayed like that? In fact, I believe that's what God wants to hear. I believe it's why he allows storms in the first place. So the people will realize that they're not sovereign over their lives. He is. he is. You know, the Bible is full of statements that God hears the desperate cry of people who are in distress. Just listen to the word of God. Psalm 18.6 In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help, and from his temple he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears my favorite psalm Psalm 40 I waited patiently for the Lord he inclined to me he heard my cry he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust Psalm 120 in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me You know, it occurs to me, maybe that's where you're at today. Distressed and desperate. You can head out to the bar, I guess, and try to drown your sorrows there. You can seek escape through endless movies or fantasy novels or pornography. You can get angry at your situation and lash out. You can project your anger on other people. You can stuff everything down, stuff it down, stuff it down, and sink into depression. Or you can change your hairstyle and your wardrobe and your car and your spouse and try to reinvent yourself, or you can call out in distress to God. And the Bible promises that He will hear you. He will hear you. God promises to respond to the humble in heart. But I need to say this to you. The first stage of God's rescue might be dark like the inside of a fish. I can imagine Jonah. Oh, so this is how you're rescuing me? This doesn't feel like rescue. It doesn't smell like rescue. You just need to know that God is after something more than just relieving you of your distress. Did you know that? He wants something more. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to be aligned with his heart so that what matters most to him starts to matter most to you. That's what he's after. And he's not above using a two-stage rescue plan or a three-stage or a four-stage to accomplish his purposes. And so pray Jonah's prayer of desperation and then be ready for God's unique rescue plan to unfold before your eyes. The sixth thing I notice about this prayer is it contains what has been called the most important summary statement in the whole Bible. Do you see it there at the end of the prayer? What's the last phrase? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Would you say that with me? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you know that little phrase could summarize the whole Bible? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's rescue had nothing to do with him and he knew it. He knew that God and God alone rescued him. Self-salvation was not a productive option. And just as rowing harder didn't work for the sailors on the boat, swimming harder didn't work for Jonah in the sea. Only God can rescue. Only God can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah realized that. He was humbled by it. But apparently... Jonah did not extrapolate that out to realize that God wanted to save not just him from death in the sea, but God also wanted to save the Ninevites from their own sin and idolatry. He didn't get that. And so number seven, I see that this prayer does reflect a grateful heart, but I don't think it reflects a fully repentant heart. And now... Commentators, There's a wide range of opinions by Bible commentators on what the actual state of Jonah's heart is when he's inside the belly of the fish. Some believe that the gospel was finally dropping down into his heart and he was now contrite. And I can see why they think that, but I don't agree. Several things I see in this story convince me that Jonah's heart was still divided and was not fully repentant before the Lord. You say, like what? Well, I notice that he is indeed grateful for God rescuing him, But there's no prayer yet for the Ninevites. I don't see him praying, Oh God, save those Ninevites. I don't see that. Second, in verse 8, he seems ready to point out the idolatry in the hearts of the sailors. but I don't see him pointing out the the idolatry that's in his own heart. And then there's chapter 4. The rest of the story shows Jonah pouting like a little kid because God still wants to save the Ninevites. It reveals a man who is still convinced that he is righteous while others are not righteous, that he deserved to be saved while those bad people don't, and that God was right in showing mercy to him, but wrong to offer mercy to them. And so, yes, salvation belongs to the Lord, but I, Jonah, should have a say in who it gets offered to. I mean, that's what I see. So I believe that Jonah was not yet where God wanted him to be, that he was the classic double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, just like the waves out on the sea. But despite all this, our merciful God was still intent on using Jonah. And rather than leave him in the belly of the great fish to be slowly eaten away by the gastric juices... The Lord God instead deployed phase two of his rescue plan. He'd already delivered Jonah from drowning in the sea. And now he arranges for him to be delivered from the smelly belly of the great fish. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. That's interesting. And it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. So not only did God hurl a great wind upon the sea back in chapter 1, not only did the sailors hurl the cargo out of the boat, and not only did Jonah say, hurl me into the sea and the storm will stop, but now the great fish is doing some hurling of his own. As I said last week, there's a whole lot of hurling going on in the story of Jonah. And so, picture in your mind where things stand now. There Jonah is, laying in the sand on the beach, covered in sticky fish scales, and slime all over his body, no doubt gulping in huge mouthfuls of fresh, clean air for the first time in several days. No doubt he's praising God once again for this second deliverance now from darkness. Now he wonders what's next in God's sovereign plan for him, this amazing God who relentlessly pursues sinners. And that's where we're going to leave Jonah for today, on the beach, And just as he was wondering about some things, we can do some wondering of our own. Will Jonah take a shower and make himself presentable again? Will Jonah ever eat another fish sandwich in his life? Will the smell ever go away? And more importantly, will God give Jonah a second chance to deliver his message to the people of Nineveh? Will Jonah ever see his own rescue by God as a picture of God's desire to rescue the Ninevites? And will Jonah's self-righteous condemning heart ever be fully transformed? We'll come back next week and Pastor Claude will reveal the answers in the continuing ongoing saga of Jonah, the rebellious prophet. (laughs) Before I close, let me once again say this. Seven centuries later, another messenger from God would arrive in Israel with a similar message of judgment And an offer of mercy. Like Jonah, this one would also be entombed in a place of darkness for three days. And like Jonah, this chosen messenger would not be abandoned to the darkness, but would be delivered from the tomb by the power of God. Unlike Jonah, however, this risen man, his heart would be for the city and he would run towards the city. In his love for lost sinners, pursuing them, not gleefully awaiting their destruction, but instead gladly offering them pardon. This one would ascend back up into heaven and then send his Holy Spirit down to indwell his followers and empower them to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And this one's name is Jesus. Jesus. It's a sweet name, isn't it? Do you know what Jesus means? You know what the name means? It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah rescues. Jehovah delivers. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jesus is the true and better Jonah, isn't he? Where Jonah failed miserably, Jesus succeeded wonderfully. And as a result, lost sinners can be saved and rescued from sin and idolatry and death. Jesus, the truly faithful messenger from God. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer together. And as you do, I want you to just think about what you've heard this morning and what you've seen depicted in front of you. Think about that. Or how many of you would lift your hands and say, you know what, God has delivered me from some very dark places in my life and I just praise God for that. Would you lift your hands? God's delivered me from some dark, dark places. Me too, me too. Would you take a moment and just thank him? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. Just say, thank you, God. I was going down. I was going down and you rescued me. It occurs to me that for some of you, maybe that's these days. Maybe you're in a dark place these days. You're not sure what to do. And you're becoming desperate. And you're wondering what the way of escape is. Is that true of any of you today? Would you lift your hands and say, that's me, Pastor Steve. I'm in that place these days. I see about maybe a dozen, 15 hands. You can put your hands down. Man, it's tough to be in a dark place. Maybe you feel like Jonah did, you know. I don't even know if there's any hope for me. Can I encourage you to do something? Our prayer partners are going to take a place here on either side of the front here. And if if you're in that desperate, dark place right now, I want to ask you to humble yourself and come and be prayed with, would you? I mean, how could that hurt? Come and let someone pray. Let let them pray over you. Let them ask God on your behalf to give you insight that you need in your situation. Let them ask God to rescue you. Let them ask God to show you what pathway, what steps he might want you to take. Would you do that? You can can get up right now and come and just be prayed with. I uh, had second thoughts about whether I should mention this next one, but I will. Because I imagine there's some in the room who struggle with prejudice. You have Jonah's heart. And there are groups of people that you despise, you hate, you don't want to see them thrive. You don't want to see them prosper and do well. You want you want God to deal with them. And that's that's Jonah's heart. That's that's a self-righteous, contemptuous, critical, condemning heart. Needs to be repented of. That's not the heart of Jesus. I've been there. I'm not pointing fingers at you. I've had that in my own heart. And if that's you, I, I would encourage you to come or may, where you sit or come and kneel and just say, God, this is so wrong. I see this in my heart. It's so wrong. It's so unlike your heart. And ask him to cleanse your heart and change you and give, him, and give you his heart. Then one last thing. I know a couple of people last week wrote me and said, uh, you know, like God called Jonah, God's calling me to a mission, to a task, to a ministry, and they told me about it. I thought, well, I'll bet you that there's others that God's been calling you to something, but you've been keeping it kind of a secret, and I would encourage you to tell somebody. I think God might be calling me to this, this ministry, this task, this assignment. Come and tell me. Or share it with a small group leader or a prayer partner. Tell somebody. Let them pray over that with you. So let's respond to the word of the Lord these next few moments and then we'll worship together.